Hey everyone, this is Know Your Potential, NYP episode 12, and today's blockchain episode will explain Ethereum and discuss new integrations with PayPal and Visa. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Know Your Potential with David and Phil Mio, your source for motivational insight and discussion of all things relating to business, technology, and life. We banter and interview like-minded individuals striving to be the best version of themselves, generate value for society, and achieve the life they want to live. Hey, everyone. It's Phil Ngo here. Hey, everyone. This is David Ngo. I hope you guys are all doing well. Hey, it's been uh, another week. Dave, another week in crypto. What does that mean? Is that like, are we at 100K yet? You know what? We're not there yet. It's been a pretty crazy and wild week to say the least. I mean, we recently went from as high, I think it was 57,000. We dropped all the way down to 50. And uh, when I last checked today, we're at 59,000. So it's quite the bounce. And uh, it had a lot of people sad who sold going down, but whoever bought at 50 is uh, doing pretty good today. It's amazing. Crypto is kind of like one of those uh, weird worlds where like a year worth of stuff happening gets compressed into like a week. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty much like hyper stocks, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So before we go into this uh, blockchain episode, um, just a disclaimer for everyone. Of course, none of these blockchain episodes is giving any investment advice. It's purely educational. It's only to aid your investments. And uh, cryptocurrency is very volatile. So you should only invest with money you're comfortable with losing. And of course, do your own research, as you can mm-hmm. see with uh, these crazy volatile uh, Bitcoin prices. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Phil. And yeah. so now the first thing, let's talk about one of the biggest news that's happened this week. Pretty much Visa now utilizing cryptocurrencies, what they called it, but in reality, it, it's Ethereum that they're using um, to settle all their transactions right now. Right, Phil? Yeah. So I, I just find it weird with like, when it comes to media, I don't know why they're so hesitant to say something like Ethereum. My guess is basically because not a lot of people actually know what Ethereum is compared to Bitcoin. So perhaps they're just trying to use the word cryptocurrency so people kind of understand. But uh, that kind of irritates me a little bit, being a guy that that knows a lot more about this industry, you know, just utilize Ethereum. Um, so to expand on that quickly, David, basically what Visa is doing is they're utilizing a stable coin, which is basically a digital representation of a United States dollar on the blockchain. So it's something called USDC or USD coin that is basically a digital token that is um, managed by a, a consortium called Center Consortium. And it's basically a combination of a tech peer-to-peer um, technology company called Circle alongside Coinbase. And I think by now we all know what Coinbase is, right? So th- this is pretty cool and uh, very exciting news because uh, Visa is, I think, the, the largest credit card issuer in the world, where they have about 336 million cardholders. Uh, the second one is, is MasterCard with, I think, 250 million or so. So again, the fact that Visa is pretty much um, you know, now accepting USDC as a, pay, a form of payment is really legitimizing what cryptocurrencies and internet digital magic money is actually worth something and you can transfer it around the air and it's still worth something. So again, uh, this really does take cryptocurrency to a next level right now. Yeah, for sure. Just getting into a little bit more depth as to what Visa is trying to do is they're basically piloting uh, using the uh, USD coin, stable coin, which is based on the Ethereum blockchain um, to basically settle 
transactions. So basically when you buy things with your credit card, you know, it's pretty instant, it's pretty fast. You just tap your, your Visa card on a point of sales terminal. And then from there, uh, it, within a couple seconds, you get approved to buy your coffee at Starbucks, for example. But where the magic really happens is at the end of the day, when everything settles and the money is actually transferred between Visa and your bank. And where, where this innovation is happening is now they're actually being able to settle these transactions with digital currency through a digital uh, currency custodian called Anchorage. So let, let's take a small step back, stablecoin. So pretty much what that means is that for every one US dollar stablecoin, there is one US dollar somewhere that is pretty much a representation of that, right? So unlike the current um, monies that's in, in the US uh, currencies, pretty much they have no represent, representation of anything. It's pretty much, they just continually print out and that's however much they wanna do. Whereas with stablecoin, there is a limit and you see exactly how many dollars there are there and that's how many coins there are exactly out in the world. Is that how it works, Phil, stablecoin? Yeah, exactly. So there are different types of stablecoins, but we'll focus on this one where it's basically custody backed. So you're trusting uh, Coinbase as the custodian to really um, be able to match a dollar of USDC with a dollar of USDC issued on the blockchain. So that's where the trust aspect comes in. But of course, they are supported um, and have been actually uh, very compliant with regulations uh, in the United States. So they Visa chose them because of their reputa uh, reputation. Uh, of being um, trustworthy custodians and to ensure that the the one for one transparency does exist. That's amazing. I mean, again, it's, it's a complete game changer right now that Visa has uh, adopted this right now, right? And yeah. the other big news right now we have is PayPal. You want to touch up on that, Phil? Yeah. So PayPal is now actually allowing U.S. crypto customers to spend their cryptocurrency at their online merchants, which is huge because. PayPal is basically a, a merchant processing network. So uh, pretty much any business, almost any business would, may, would probably take PayPal as a form of payment. And what PayPal is enabling cryptocurrency holders to do now is to seamlessly use their cryptocurrency as easily as you would uh, tapping a debit or a credit card into any of their online merchants in their network. Because prior to this, pretty much PayPal was allowing people to purchase crypto on, on PayPal, but you were never able to take it out or actually use it. It was pretty much just like a little stock exchange inside of PayPal. So this is one of the first step of branching out and actually allowing to use the crypto that you own in your account as though it was real fiat dollar, purchasing anything through one of their merchants. Yeah, and, huge. And one of the cool thing is what you have to remember is that PayPal actually has about 286 million users so again, now that means that there are, there are approximately 286 million users in the world that can use um, PayPal's new crypto payments as a form of paying for any of the merchants again. So again, it's uh, huge in the sense that this pretty much brings crypto to 286 million users who have never ever really used it or, or thought to use it to pay for anything before this. Yeah, and I'm not even sure how many um, online merchants accept PayPal, but basically any of those people will be able to um, accept cryptocurrencies in the form of a fiat conversion. So what will happen is basically if you have cryptocurrency in your PayPal digital wallet, 
they will just instantly convert it into whatever the merchant is asking. So is, is it instantly converted or is there a choice for the merchant to say, hey, whatever I get paid in crypto, I want to keep it in crypto. Do you know that or is it still up in the air? So based on what I read, I believe they will convert it to the fiat currency because I, I believe that um, most merchants, at least from the ones that I've talked to, would prefer to have fiat currency because that's how they settle their um that's how they pay their bills. That's how yeah. they uh, basically do most of their business, right? Okay, so to, keep, one, yeah. so to keep it simple, that's how they're doing it right now. But maybe and hopefully in the future, once I guess more merchants are willing or able to, to accept and hold on to crypto, uh, maybe it's going to be an option in the future. But I guess right now, PayPal just wants to keep it very simple and say, hey, we'll do all the backend stuff. You don't have to think or stress about anything. Your website will take crypto, but I'll pay you all in fiat. So don't stress about anything. That's kind of how and what they're doing right now with, uh, with this whole new process. Yeah, they're just basically an on-ramp, off-ramp for people who uh, actually have crypto and want to spend it. But, you know, not every retailer uh, wants cryptocurrency at this point in time. So um, they'll do the conversion. But the best part is PayPal stated that they won't charge any transaction fee to check out with cryptocurrencies, which is uh, very neat. So is it because they're trying to encourage more crypto usage? Because, I mean, if, if you're using or paying with credit card or fiat, I'm assuming they're charging a fee right now, right? Uh, yeah, generally, um, the, the problem with, uh, with utilizing the crypto world into like the traditional fiat world is a lot of the times it's hard to go between the two. So what PayPal is doing is actually just making it easier for you to go in between your, your cryptocurrency and your fiat. Uh, and but I, I suspect in the future that maybe it, it'll change where people just want to do everything in crypto, but that's still an assumption. And in terms of uh, cryptocurrencies they're accepting, it's not just Bitcoin right now, right? I think I read it, it was Bitcoin, Ether, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin also. Are there any anything else or are those the four main ones they're accepting right now? Th those are the four main ones that they're accepting right now. And um, in, in the future, maybe more, but that's that's all we have at the moment. Again, still super exciting though, compared to what it was just a week ago, even a few days ago. So it's, yeah. been, it's, it's, it's been a very big, big week for, for crypto and uh, a lot more onboarding. There's a lot more, uh, again, big companies um, that matter in the world that are slowly seeing cryptocurrency being something here to stay. And slowly they are adding more options available and, and uh, offerings. Uh, so again, I personally, I think 2021 is going to be a very, very big year for crypto in terms of seeing how many more people that are going to be onboarding and, and allowing more cryptocurrency acceptance on their websites. And, and their users and customers as well. Because again, right now, if you're not adding it on um, and your competitor is, it means you're a laggard. You're behind your competitor and that nobody wants to be a laggard. <laughs> yes. And, and the great thing is now you're not actually the first one. Because oh, so, yeah, back in the day, it was kind of a huge risk for a lot of people. But now it's uh, now you're not going to get fired for bringing up Bitcoin in like a, a hedge fund office, for example. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a thing. You, you might even get a bonus for being one of the first to bring it up now, right? Whereas if you, you mentioned this two years ago, somebody would have fired you. Say, get the hell out of here with your monopoly internet money. You don't belong in here. Now anybody, oh, yeah. who, now, now anybody who talks about Bitcoin or crypto, they're like, wow, you're, you're a pioneer in this. Bring on all your crypto friends and teach us everything about crypto. This is where it's at now. Yeah, there was a point in time when uh, Jamie Diamond of, um, of JP Morgan Chase was actually stating that he would fire any traders that were trading cryptocurrencies on their he, own time. He, he was shitting on Bitcoin and crypto, the, one of the hardest guys that was shitting on crypto ever. And uh, now him and his banks are uh, pro-crypto. So again, so funny how things can change so quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, that just goes back to what we were saying about how like 
in crypto, one week of crypto is almost like an entire year of like traditional finance stuff. It just but, so much happens. But what my belief behind this is that because I think when Bitcoin and crypto all came out at first, it was kind of like the anti-bank, anti-middleman. So I think all banks needed to hate on crypto and, and what it stood for because it's pretty much cutting them out. So I think instead of them trying to hit, hate on it and shit on it, I think they've kind of realized like, hey, we can't fight this wave of users who are believing into this cryptocurrency thing right now. So you know what? We really need to start adopting it or get left behind. And I think after a few, after 2018, it's been two years now and Elon Musk and Michael Saylor and so many other companies that are you know, onboarding crypto and accepting it now, I think all these banks are seeing shit. If we don't get on board right now, somebody else will and all the clients are going to go in that and, and uh, they're going to be losing out. So again, crazy how, how things so much can change. It's a matter of, again, weeks or in this you know, couple of years. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's very interesting because like everyone is very focused on Bitcoin right now. But there is a whole world out there that, so this that is, people are missing. This is Phil's favorite topic right, right now, guys. So right now, as Phil mentioned earlier, there's not many people who fully understand what Ethereum is. We've actually never talked about Ethereum uh, or gone into detail about Ethereum in, in our podcast yet. So this episode is definitely all Phil. Phil has been working hard on this one. He's been doing his research. This is many, many years of experience all put into one episode right now. So Phil... Uh, please give us a quick introduction. No, let's, let's not make it quick. Just give us the, the more or less the full introduction of Ethereum and how you see it and how it sets itself apart from Bitcoin or any other coins and why you believe that Ethereum is here to stay and how, again, how is how it's better than most other coins out there right now. Yeah. So the great thing about um, Ethereum that I can put into one sentence for you is that it's basically a general purpose blockchain. So if you look at something like Bitcoin at the moment, Bitcoin really has one purpose. It is arguably digital gold. That's the one application that it's good for. It has a, a controlled supply schedule. It has scarcity. It makes for a good store of value. And that is sort of the one application that Bitcoin is known for, but also technically speaking is also uh, what its main purpose is for. When it comes to something like Ethereum, and when I say general purpose, that means you can actually build multiple applications on top of it. So when you think of Ethereum, it's not just a one application blockchain. It's not like Bitcoin where it's just like, oh, this, is, this makes for a really good store value coin or something like that. And that's all it does. With Ethereum, you're basically expanding it now into like a world computer that has apps built on top of it. So this is um, a good analogy that Vitalik Buterin, who is the creator of Ethereum, uh, sort of put into context for people where Bitcoin is something like a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet where you control your few little cells on the spreadsheet. What Ethereum does is it's basically an Excel sheet with macros on it now. So if you understand like how Excel works, basically is you're able to program to do certain things on top of your spreadsheet. So if you look at something like Bitcoin, it is generally known as a shared digital ledger. It's a ledger that uh, basically shows you how much Bitcoin is in whatever account at every period of time and, be, and is able to you know, historically go back and you can see everything from the very beginning of Genesis. Uh, which is block zero up to this point, like where all the Bitcoin has moved and all that stuff. With Ethereum, 
take that model, but expand it into more than just like a digital ledger. It is now a world computer. It is a computer that has a bunch of different applications on it and is um, basically allowing you to build applications that will not necessarily depend on you or a single entity to keep running. So an analogy of this, it would be like an unstoppable application. You build something on top of Ethereum, like a contract, basically a smart contract, which is what Ethereum has introduced to say, um, let's just say like an example of an escrow contract where David and I have to do, um, David is selling me his headphones, for example. We can put money into an escrow contract, which will basically state that, um, you know, when I receive the headphones, um, I will sign the transaction and say I've received it and David can, um, can also sign it saying, okay, yeah, Phil has received it or something like that. But the idea is you can basically program this contract to do something um, that otherwise couldn't have been done on something like Bitcoin. So, so pretty much what Ethereum is very smart money, whereas Bitcoin is dumb money is what, what you compared it as before pretty much, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can say that Ethereum is basically programmable money. So imagine with that escrow contract, for example, you trust the coding of that contract to be able to do something when something happens, for example. So another good analogy of this is it's kind of like an automated vending machine. You put a coin into a vending machine and it does something and then you end up with something else. So um, that's pretty much a good way to describe the kind of functionality that something like Ethereum has above Bitcoin. So even going into the example of uh, Visa utilizing USDC, which is the USD coin that we talked about earlier, it is basically a smart contract and it has, it maps out how many accounts has whatever USDC token out there and is basically a contract that has created these digital tokens that represent United States dollars that Coinbase is holding um, and then to be able to use in the digital economy. So and to add a little bit more context to this also for anyone who's not aware, Ethereum is the second most valuable uh, or the largest coin or the most valuable coin um, by market cap. Uh, Ethereum right now, to give you an idea, I'm looking at it, uh, Bitcoin's valuation total is about 1.1 trillion and Ethereum is at 212 billion. And right below that would be Binance, which is at 46 billion. So you kind of see you know, how much each coin is and how far it is from each other. But the, another cool story about Ethereum, it was actually started or founded in Toronto. Phil, you, you, you were at the Ethereum uh, headquarters before, right? Yeah, so Ethereum never really had a headquarters per se, but um, the creator, Vitaly Buterin, is actually from Toronto. Um, he um, went to school at University of Waterloo and he would um, basically attend uh, Bitcoin meetups in Toronto. Uh, back in the day, as he was uh, doing stuff in the cryptocurrency space, he was doing Bitcoin magazine back then. And he used to hang out at a place called Decentral, which was basically like a, like an incubator, uh, you could say, for startups in the blockchain space. A very, very early place where um, the founder there, Anthony Diorio, would um, host regular Bitcoin meetups. And through there, um, there was um, that's where a lot of the discussion and stuff and development happened for Ethereum and where it actually started um, becoming a thing. 
But wait, tell me the fun and cool story you told me before of how much Ethereum was being sold for when it first came out. It was being sold in lots of 10,000 for what price? How much did you get in that? Yeah, so um, the the white paper was actually published uh, around 2013, 2014 time. Um, and that's when the, the crowd the crowd sale or the ICO, which is basically the very first ever ICO, um, was created to fundraise Bitcoin to develop Ethereum. And back in those days, around 2014, you could buy a Bitcoin for about $500 USD, give or take. And each one of those would have amounted to 2000 Ether um, back in those days. Um, so let's say first- 500 divided by 2000. So it's about 25 cents an Ether was what they were, it was going for the price back then. Yeah. And then when it got listed on exchanges for the very first um, aspects of trading, um, you could have picked up Ethereum for about 31 cents back then. 31 cents. And again, for anyone who's not aware, uh, Ethereum today is valued at 1,850 US dollars each one. So I, I don't even want to know what how many times you returned your money on 25 cents to 1,847. But you, anyone who got in early is doing very well today. Yeah, basically, uh, they, they would be the OGs, I guess you, <laughs> you could say, of, of Ethereum. But, um, you know, very, very little people actually knew about what uh, Ethereum was, what it was capable of. Some people back then uh, only knew about Bitcoin and also thought of Ethereum as a scam back then, too, because obviously, like, everything was just so new and very high risk back then. Um, all this stuff that I'm explaining to you wasn't necessarily in um, in the visions of of Vitalik Buterin. Like this has kind of gone to a point now where um, this Ethereum ecosystem has a bunch of core developers that are not uh, Vitalik. Vitalik doesn't really have a large say anymore in how the ecosystem sort of develops. It's very much decentralized now compared to it was before. But that's also one of the main reasons why you're so fond of Ethereum, right? Because there are so many developers and so many um, apps and so many things that are being made and you know made with it, done with it, that are growing with it, that you believe that this is here to stay. There's too many people that are invested into this for it to kind of just disappear and be gone. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would give a huge shout out to one of the co-founders, Joseph Lubin, who was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. Um, and he developed a sort of like an accelerator or incubator called Consensus, which basically funneled a lot of that money back into the Ethereum ecosystem to develop the most important aspect, in my opinion, of, uh, of Ethereum, which is developer tools. Because Ethereum depends on people building things to make it really valuable. Because as a computer, if you have no apps, it's kind of useless. But once you start having people be able to develop stuff for your app store, it significantly um, makes your, your protocol more valuable. Because if you went into like an Apple app store and there was no apps there because nobody's developing things, well, how useful would it be for that, right? Like not, there wouldn't be a, a huge reason for you to necessarily own a MacBook at that point. Um, so it's kind of like the same idea. Do you want to build those developer tools so that you encourage developers to come in, make it easy for them to build things on top of your platform. And that's what Joseph Lubin and Consensus did for the ecosystem. So, I mean, and in terms of Bitcoin and Ethereum, I know you've, you know, you've mentioned it before, pretty much Bitcoin is the gold of uh, cryptocurrency and Ethereum is the, the oil of, of cryptocurrency, yeah. right? That's how you explained it before. 
Yeah, so I've explained it many times as the fact that um, whenever you do transactions on the Ethereum blockchain, it, it's not free. Kind of like how when you transfer Bitcoin, you also have transaction fees that you pay the miners to be able to process your transaction. Same idea with, uh, with Ethereum, except on the Ethereum network, you don't use Bitcoin, you use something called Ether. So Ether would be the gas that basically runs the network. That's what you pay to the miners to be able to process your transaction. Um, so it's actually been described as, as like, um, like gas in the sense or oil, internet oil, you can say, um, because it kind of does that same function, but in a digital aspect. All right, so Bitcoin is a store of gold, Ethereum is oil. So tell me what cool things are being built on Ethereum and what are we doing with Ethereum right now compared to again, gold just being a store of value, Ethereum, what are people doing with it? Yeah, so I guess one of the more popular ones that I'll uh, talk to right now is NFTs, which is NFTs, probably- that is the word of the, media, of the media right now. Any news channel you open up anywhere, NFTs, 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 Beeple's yeah. $69 million NFT painting. Crazy. It's gone insane right now. It, it kind of sounds like the ICO boom in 2017 almost. But, uh, but NFTs are basically um, Ethereum smart contracts. Um, I would say a good percentage, if not all of the, the NFTs out there right now are based on Ethereum, which is huge for the ecosystem. Um, NFTs stand for non-fungible tokens. So when you think of what uh, a fungible token is, it's basically, um, it's not unique. So for example, if, uh, if I had a US dollar in one hand and another US dollar in one hand, it really makes no difference. They all equal one USD. They're all kind of the same. They're fungible. Now, when you take something um, like a Charizard Pokemon card, there's only very few of these and there's probably, they're probably numbered in because uh, they're like collectibles basically, which is what makes them unique. So one card is not the same as another one of these cards. It makes it unique. So what NFTs are is that they're unique digital tokens. And the Pokemon example I used, it could be attributed to like baseball cards back in the day or whatever to make something on the internet of unique value. And that's what NFTs are. Now, for the use cases of what NFTs are good for, well, one of them would be digital art, for example. Digital art, uh, by having an NFT attached to it, you would be able to have a unique digital token that represents, say, ownership of the digital art. Then you can also verify that you are the owner because there's only one of these NFTs and you can prove it on the blockchain that you actually own this this uh, digital Mona Lisa, for example. There's many copies of Mona Lisa out there, but there's only one true one. And so what's cool about this is that pretty much um, when the NFT is created, it shows who created it, when it was created it. Um, and even if anyone, if ever it passes hands from, from me to over to you, you to wherever it is, you see the, the sale of every single one of these transactions, how much was paid for it. So there is a way for you to verify back that one, it's original, two, um, that the value of this, this art piece continually raised in price as it kept getting sold from one person to the next to the next. So there's a way for you to kind of assume the value of this piece that you're about to buy 
looking at the history of it, seeing who has bought, bought it before, and you're buying it in hopes that people are going to see how much you paid for it, so that when you resell in the future, someone will say, hey, this guy paid this much for it. So that's, this is the rough value of what this is, because someone else, someone else is willing to pay that price for this. Remember how I said that, um, that Ethereum and smart contracts are basically like programmable money? So with the cool thing with NFTs is they're basically smart contracts as well. So you're, we're going to get to a point where when you say transfer your artwork to somebody else, you can also program in there that every time a sale is made, I make 5% residual income from every time this gets passed on. I know so, that's crazy, but that's only for the original creator of, of it though, right? Not the ones after, not the people after that. Yeah. I mean, like at the end of the day, you can program it to do whatever you want. Um, but, um, but that would be say like a good use case for NFTs because you can always enforce the aspect of you having residual income of this piece of work that you published. Um, the other cool thing, uh, like the use case aspect of it could be used for something like music, for example. Let's just say you're like a music producer and you have these sick beats and you're just like, man, someone's going to pick these up, put it in like some nice like Kanye West, Jay-Z song or something like that. And uh, but I want to make sure, you know, like I get my you know paycheck for for the cool beats that I publish. Well, eventually we'll get to a point where you have, say, um, a published work of beats and you attach like an NFT to it, for example. And then when some music producer, someone like Jay-Z stumbles upon it and is like, damn, these beats are sick. I want to use it in my next track. Now there's a way to track who owns those beats and be able to incorporate it into say someone else's music so that everyone is fairly compensated for their work. Like this NFT digital economy is super, super awesome for creators. This is probably the most a uh, unique and amazing thing that has ever come out for for artists and creators because again you know so sometimes we see you know paintings and artwork being sold at Sotheby's for millions and millions and millions of dollars but the sad thing is when the creator of this when he first sold the first piece he probably sold it for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars he made a profit on it that one time and then after that it transferred hands a hundred times and sold for hundreds of millions of dollars back and forth, left and right. And he didn't, he or she never made one penny off of any sale after other than the first one. So with NFTs, the craziest and coolest thing, which I think is the most, again, smartest thing possible for it, for an artist to want to have an NFT. Like you mentioned, it's pretty much after that one sale he makes on, you know, his full profit on it, his or her full profit, every single sale after that, they can, you know, like, like you said, program it to say every single transaction going forward, I will always get 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever it may be every time that this gets sold or resold. So again, as a creator, as an artist, they can continually um, monetize off of one piece of work for hundreds of years going on in the future, no matter who or what it gets sold to. So I, again, I think that's amazingly cool. And it makes so much sense for these artists and creators to, to be able to benefit from, uh, from the growth of their brand, their name, uh, and a reason for them to continually to keep pushing their products and their brand and their products to increase the value of their artwork. Yeah, exactly. I think for the longest time, the creators and the artists, the, the, the term starving artist comes about because all these uh, labels and uh, keep rent seeking from other people's work. And this is where this whole new economy actually benefits the actual creators and not have middlemen actually take you know, chunks of uh, somebody else's work resells them and keeps most of the profits. Like this is a world that is enabling the power of the creator and to be, and hopefully we'll get rid of the term starving artists. 
and, and that's um, that's amazing because again a, a lot of these labels i don't want to call them sharks you know but sometimes they will look for amazing you know artists or creators and pretty much they know a lot of these guys like you said are starving so for them to offer them here's a fifty thousand dollars for this song you create or this art piece you created when really they know the, val the value for that is much much more but they know this artist is starving and they're not going to say no to this fifty thousand or this one million dollars for this album you're going to create here's a million dollars you should be happy with it but let me take your album and try to flip it and make 10 20 50 100 million on it but you get your one million and whatever else after that it's none of your business Exactly. This is a, a whole new game changer as to how the NFTs um, in a more technical aspect will pan out. It's still, everything is still up in development, but uh, it's it's pretty awesome to see how much traction it's getting. And it all started literally in 2017 with something called CryptoKitties. And that started all of this. And I remember that actually really clogged up the uh, Ethereum uh, backlog, everything. It was, it was just insane how everybody wanted their own unique crypto kitty yeah exactly it's kind of like a collectible like um like a bit like one of those cards and which is also another great use case i mean collectible items and games like this is a whole other use case for nfts because let's just say you play games like uh like world of warcraft and uh you can provably prove that uh your item for example is scarce or there's only five of these items in all of the World of Warcraft world. And um, that you can basically use an NFT to prove who actually owns this item, where it is at all times, how it's been passed on. Um, there's just so many, so many things you can do with NFTs. And the great thing about the Ethereum platform is it's really only limited to your imagination as to what you can create. So again, one of the other cool things with, with NFTs, though, which I've kind of like, uh, you know, thought about and I've, I've read up on also, which I think makes a lot of sense, is pretty much the fact that, you know, to give you as, as an example, uh, you know, people nowadays, let's say if you had a million dollars worth of art you purchase and it's in your house, you have a painting hanging here, a sculpture over there. So again, you have a million dollars of artwork at home, but the reality is no one will ever know or really see what you own um, unless they're inside your house. So now this is the complete opposite of where if you purchase a million dollars of NFTs, you have like an online portfolio showing all of the NFTs you own and showing where you spent that $1 million to own all these different NFTs. So at any given time, at any point of anywhere, anybody can go on your portfolio and say, hey, this guy owns all of these NFTs and he paid a million dollars for it. Wow, that's a pretty cool flex. And I can see that you own this art and, and again, it's a way of flexing, let's say, but this person is now able to show off their art to anybody and everybody in the world um, compared to when you have physical art where it's really just, it's in your house or it's in storage. And if you, if you see it, you're in here. But again, with NFTs, anybody and everybody can see it and knows you own it and knows how much you spent on it. So again, it could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, but for the people who want to, if you want to say show off some of their artwork that they've purchased, uh, this is a great way to be able to show the world uh, what you've spent your hard work, hard earned money on and what type of art you enjoy and appreciate. So again, to me, that was completely mind blowing thing to, to be able to show off all of your, your art to anybody in the world easily. Yeah, that's also such a great use case of NFTs. Um, there's so many other cool things that are being built on Ethereum. Uh, we only touched upon one of them. That was NFTs. Um, another quick one is actually something called um, Ethereum name service. So Right now, the way the internet works is that you have something called a DNS, 
which basically takes something like www.davidno.com and changes that into like an IP address to a server so you can pull the web page for davidno.com. Now, the problem with this is, is um, right now the DNS is centralized and um, it can be basically manipulated or, or in a way even going down at times um, and making everything inaccessible or pointing you to like a phishing site for davidno.com where they'll try to fish you for scams and for money and stuff. What the decentralized naming service does is that it allows you to decentralize the pointers of where the internet address is linked to. So what that means is you won't have say downtime if like, you know, cloud Cloudflare goes down, you won't necessarily lose the ability to use some, some uh, apps like Twitter and stuff like that, which you've probably heard of. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Or if you go to like a site and your site has been compromised to point to a phishing site, um, that's what these decentralized um, naming protocols are going to hopefully get rid of. So you can have something like davidno.eth now, which will point to say your public Ethereum address, David, for you to collect donations or something. <laughs> nice, that makes it much easier for me to collect any ether that I need from anybody. So yeah. if anybody wants to send any money to me or ether to me, it's uh, <laughs> davidno.eth apparently. It's gonna be set up soon. Uh, so one of the other amazing cool things that um, Ethereum is working with or where it works on is decentralized finance, Phil. You wanna touch up on this and tell us about decentralized finance and what that means and how it's different from the current way things are done? Yeah, that's so decentralized finance is a whole other big um, like um, use case, I guess, of Ethereum, uh, kind of like how NFTs is a whole big thing. Decentralized finance takes a lot of uh, financial products and services that you're usually used to, kind of like um, like banks, trading, um, exchanges, borrowing money, lending money. Um, and turning it all into decentralized applications on the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum being the, the most significant uh, blockchain for decentralized finance at the moment. So you could, you know, basically when you go to a, um, say you go to a bank and you're trying to loan some money for a car, for example, um, not only do you have to prove that um, you have credit but you know you have to prove that you have like some amount of money to be able to um to put into this purchase for example now the problem with this is you have to go to a bank and some guy types a bunch of numbers into a computer and it spits out whether or not they think you are a big risk to them so what about for people who are unbanked people who have no credit new immigrants people who don't have say a 800 or 900 credit score how do they get these sort of loans? Well, the thing with decentralized finance is it doesn't depend on people to actually approve or disprove your loans. What it does is it allows you the ability to say loan money uh, based on over collateralization of some digital asset, for example, like Ethereum. And then some of the other decentralized finance stuff is available are trading exchanges and Yep. Borrowing, lending, prediction yes. markets is one of the crazy things. <laughs> yeah, so prediction markets is is basically like a smart contract that acts as like a bookie almost. You know, like who is going to win the U.S. election or which uh, team is going to you know make it to the the NBA finals. 
Um, and then these prediction markets are basically handling what uh, a normal bookie would do, but you know, having more of the transparency aspect of it and not having the failures of a third party bookie who will just run away with your money, for example. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now that we kind of understand and know a lot about Ethereum, um, what do you do with it? How do you build on it? What do you yeah, do a bit so, more? So there's so many, the ecosystem is just growing exponentially right now. Um, there's so many things you can do depending on your skill set, what you want to do to contribute to the ecosystem. You can build on it. So if you're a developer, um, there are many resources you can tap into that will help you get started and onboard you as a developer. So you can learn things like Solidity, which is the programming language of um, Ethereum at the moment, or well, probably the most popular one. Um, consensus um, is an example of the accelerator that I explained about earlier that has a bunch of resources to help onboard new developers into the ecosystem. And honestly, like if you are a developer and you know how to build applications, um, this is a great investment into your skill set because the need for blockchain developers and smart contract developers and auditors and such is going to skyrocket. Um, and trust me, those skills will be very, very useful. And I'm sure people will pay you handsomely if you know how to program in this language. Pretty much the same, same first people who started to learn about the internet and how to build on the internet and how to grow it and how to develop it. Um, all those guys took a huge risk on, on this internet thing back in the days, which clearly we, it's a necessity today. And again, if it wasn't for all these people who kind of took the leap of faith into investing their time, effort, and future into the internet, we wouldn't have what we have today. So again, we definitely do need more developers uh, to take the leap of faith to start building more stuff on, uh, you know, on, on Ethereum and all the other crypto uh, platforms out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, blockchain developer, I'm sure, is one of the hottest sort of, um, well, in-demand jobs out there right now. And uh, when it comes to actually participating in the ecosystem, there's no better way to do it than to actually use it. Use the decentralized apps on there, get yourself exposed to how to you know, set up an Ethereum wallet and actually try using MetaMask, which is a browser-based um, wallet for Ethereum and, and try out different things, you know, like try going onto a decentralized exchange like Uniswap and try trading your ether for different types of tokens, for example. The only problem right now when it comes to using it is that there's so much demand on the Ethereum network right now. Uh, the fees are pretty expensive to be able to do certain things. It wasn't as cheap as it used to be. And that's been a huge problem right now that, um, that Ethereum is slowly chipping at um, in terms of fixing the problem. Um, I'm not going to go too much into like the technical aspects of it, but at the end of the day, if you want to use things the best way is to learn how to actually use a testnet. So getting testnet ether, ether, sorry, um, and then being able to practice utilizing these different applications on the testnets because that's free. And uh, again, so what about mining and staking? You want to explain a bit more about that also, how that's changing soon with ether? Yeah, so the other way to participate is actually to mine it or to stake it. So what that means is if you're familiar a little bit with Bitcoin mining, it's the same sort of idea with Ethereum. You dedicate a bunch of hardware like graphics cards um, and electricity 
to be able to mine Ethereum. Um, and by mining the, the Ethereum, you're basically helping to secure the network. However, in the next year, Ethereum's protocol will be transitioning into something called proof of stake. Um, basically what this means is that the whole aspect of mining to secure the network will cease to exist. And the, what is actually replacing it is something called staking. So instead of using graphics cards and um, electricity to mine Ethereum, how you create and how you create more Ethereum is basically by staking it. So staking it means taking a like something as small as a Raspberry Pi and putting some uh, Ethereum and using that to stake um, to generate more Ethereum. So you're instead of using electricity and like computer hardware, you're using Ethereum itself to generate more Ethereum. That's basically what it is. So again, very different from the current way of what the Bitcoin mining is. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, the purpose is the same in the sense that you are securing your network, but how you do it is changing. So we are also currently staking right now, right? You and I, we have a, a node, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I run my own uh, my own staking node as well. So um, there are multiple services out there for the non-technical people who want to stake their Ether. Um, but, you know, if you're a little bit more technical, yes, it's very easy to set up and to actually, you know, use some of your electricity to make uh, some more Ethereum out of it. And the great thing is it takes much, much less energy than say um, mining Bitcoin or Ethereum to, to generate more Ethereum for yourself. And it's amazing. I, I appreciate that you're, you're taking care of all of this for us. So for anybody who's listening, who sends me messages about crypto and questions, um, to be honest, Phil is the guy you want to reach out to. He is the one who's been doing this since I don't know how long. How many years has it been now, Phil? Uh, so I started in about 2013, and the first thing I ever mined was actually Dogecoin. Dogecoin, <laughs> geez. Uh, I mean, that's been doing pretty good recently, but I mean, I, I know you, not to say hate Dogecoin, but to you, it's kind of, a, it's a meme coin, right? It doesn't have any real value or anything behind it. No, it was just like for me to get exposed to the ecosystem. I, I don't even know where it went, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's wrap it up, Phil. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So actually... If you're looking to learn more about Ethereum, um, there is a great, great podcast episode with Vitalik himself explaining this um, in, I guess, the most simplistic way possible with uh, another great host. Um, this is on the Tim Ferriss show. So um, the Tim Ferriss show episode 504 is the one you want to listen to. It is uh, quite long, but you will get a lot more in-depth information about Ethereum from that podcast. Um, it pretty much takes uh, what I said and expands on it even more. I'm pretty sure Phil has listened to it seven times already. So guys, just listen to it that one time. <laughs> yeah. And then for the people who are actually like more technical, want to learn more about like the economics and the future of Ethereum, um, there is a great podcast episode um, from Bankless uh, with a ETH 2.0 researcher. So Ethereum 2 is what the new network is called when they move to proof of stake. Um, that uh, is with a guy named Justin Drake, and that is Bankless Podcast, episode 57. We'll have all of this in the show notes for you. So if you're looking to expand on Ethereum, 
Um, these are two great podcasts for you to listen to where um, what I couldn't explain in the time that we have here could be explained with the two hour episodes uh, that are from uh, Tim Ferriss and Bankless. So yeah, that's pretty much it. We'll wrap it up here, David, unless you got anything else you want to add. No, I think you, uh, you, you explain what Ethereum is uh, pretty clearly. We, we have a good understanding of it. So now we have a real, um, you know, better understanding as to what's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And uh, yeah, for anybody who's looking for investment advice, I don't think you should be contacting us. I mean, again, we don't like to give it any investment advice at all, but definitely, uh, you know, for, again, for us, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, these are all here to stay. And uh, that's why I can, we continually keep investing into it just because it's, it's going to be around for the next 10, 20, 50 years, guys. Yeah. So if you actually have any questions um, about Ethereum or Bitcoin, we, we still are taking questions at any time because we will eventually find an episode where we can answer some of these questions to get more in depth about certain topics um, about the, the crypto ecosystem or the blockchains themselves so that you have a better understanding of what you are looking into. Yeah, and all of your questions, please send it to uh, our Know Your Potential Instagram handle. Uh, that's the best way to get a hold of both of us. If you have any questions, any comments, send it to, to us there, and uh, we'll be more than happy to, uh, to reply back to you from there. Yeah, pretty much uh, Know Your Potential, NGO Your Potential is uh, pretty much our handles on almost everything except Twitter, <laughs> mm. uh, which we've explained in episode one. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you can find it all at knowyourpotential.com. That is N-G-O-yourpotential.com. And it'll link you to all of our social medias where you can be able to actually contact us and ask questions. Please follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening from. Um, and we noticed a lot of you guys are on Spotify which is awesome. So thank you for that. Please subscribe and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Have a good one.